and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence medical experts for insight and information. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and on Facebook under Providence Health System. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. And welcome to our episode on heart disease and heart failure as part of Heart Health Month. I'm your host, Dr. James Beckerman, cardiologist and medical director of heart programs for Providence Heart Institute here in Portland, Oregon. As a reminder, the information provided during this event is for educational purposes only. If you have any questions regarding medical conditions or treatment plans, please consult your physician. So let's get started. I'm thrilled to be with all of you today and incredibly psyched uh, to be with our current guests. Uh, we have Dr. Jacob Abraham and Dr. Joshua Remick, both cardiologists as part of the Providence Heart Institute. I'd love it if each of you guys could just uh, introduce yourself to everybody, share a little bit what you do and how you spend your days. Jacob, why don't you start? Thanks, Jamie, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Jacob Abraham. I am the section head of the Advanced Heart Failure Program at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center in Portland. Um, I spend my time treating patients with the most severe forms of heart failure. And outside of work, I enjoy exercise and spending time with my family. Great. Josh? Thanks, Jamie. Um, I am Josh Remick. I am a uh, heart failure cardiologist, and I joined Providence about eight years ago. And um, I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, so a native Northwesterner, and I uh, was very excited to come back to the Northwest. Um, like Jacob, I enjoy exercise, uh, being up on the mountain skiing, and spending a lot of time with my family and two dogs at home. Fantastic. So uh, we're here to talk because it is Heart Month, February, and you guys, as they say, have a certain set of skills, uh, being <laughs> primarily cardiologists who take care of patients with this condition that is terribly named heart failure. And so I would love to go straight off. Jacob, maybe you can get us centered here as to what heart failure is and what it's not. Well, Jamie, as you said, the name heart failure, or the term heart failure is really a terrible and very scary term. Um, when we talk about heart failure, what we really mean at the most basic level is that the heart is unable to pump enough blood to the body under normal hemodynamic conditions. Um, that doesn't mean that your heart is stopped. It doesn't mean that you're having a heart attack or cardiac arrest. It simply means that the heart can't do what it's supposed to do under normal circumstances. And for patients, what that may mean is that they experience fatigue or shortness of breath, perhaps with moderate exertion. Some patients who are experiencing uh, mild heart failure may only experience symptoms under the most extreme exertion. Some patients have no symptoms at all and heart failure is really just a label that's applied because they have abnormalities that are subtle on um, imaging studies or by lab work. There are a few patients who certainly develop the most severe forms of heart disease and do require advanced therapies such as heart transplantation or the insertion of a mechanical heart pump, but fortunately that's a minority of patients. So it really runs the gamut. Um, sometimes when I talk to patients, I try to frame things into 
ways that I can easily understand. Uh, sometimes I kind of use the analogy of the heart as like the engine of your car. And the idea that, you know, maybe sometimes you want to take your car out on the highway or go off-roading or do different kinds of things. And if your car isn't able to meet those needs, then that's kind of akin to the issues that we have with heart failure. So it's not necessarily a true failure. It's just that the function of the heart is not optimized to meet the needs of the body. So Josh, when I get into a conversation with a patient about heart failure, mm -hmm. the first question that people often ask is, oh, so that means that my heart is weak. And I'd love for you to break down for people the idea that there's different types of heart failure. And just kind of take it, take us through that a little bit. Yeah, so um, it's true. There are, in broad strokes, sort of two types of heart failure that we see patients with. Um, generally speaking, we're talking about roughly 6 million people in the United States who have this disease, and, and it breaks down about equally 50-50 those who have a, so to speak, weak pump where the heart doesn't squeeze particularly well, we call these patients or diagnose them with what's called systolic heart failure. And then there's the uh, population where the heart squeezes fine on imaging studies, but they still have symptoms of heart failure. And this is usually a result of the heart not relaxing well. It doesn't uh, unload properly after it contracts. And those are often refer to patients with diastolic heart failure. And so typically the symptoms are, you know, universal. Like Jacob said, they can have fatigue or shortness of breath, particularly with exertion. Um, they can have symptoms of swelling or what's known as fluid retention. Uh, but the treatment for the different types of heart failure uh, do are somewhat different and somewhat unique depending on uh, the particular type that we're, we're uh, describing. Yeah, that, that concept of what you call diastolic heart failure, where the heart is squeezing well, but it doesn't relax as well. I feel like that's, that's a hard thing for a lot of us to get our minds around. What, one of the ways that I sometimes think about it is if your job was to blow up a balloon and somebody decided to wrap a piece of tape around that balloon, even though you had the force uh, to try to inflate it, there's just something restricting it because it's not as elastic as it should be that makes it harder for it to function the way that it's supposed to. So when we think about the different ways to treat heart failure, it starts with prevention. And I would love it if, Jacob, you could get into a little bit how we can prevent heart failure. And honestly, if we have a very early stage of it, how lifestyle changes can help us maybe to be delayed from reaching those later stages. Absolutely. It's an important question. So first of all, one of the most common causes of heart failure in Western countries or developed countries is coronary artery disease or blocked heart arteries and heart attack. So we know that some of the most common risk factors for developing coronary disease and heart failure that can result from it include elevated blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, and being overweight. And those are all 
factors that are within a person's control to either eliminate in, in terms of smoking or to try to control in terms of blood pressure and diabetes. And for other patients who don't have those types of heart failure, um, those same aspects of self-care are still really important, not only because they affect the blood vessels, um, but they also help or affect the heart in other ways. So taking care to maintain a healthy body weight, avoiding excessive alcohol, um, treating other risk factors, as we've mentioned, um, I might also add to that list, um, conditions like obstructive sleep apnea, which itself are associated with being overweight, are all contributors to the development and the progression of heart failure of, of any variety. And so these are really important to try to target in addition to the medications. That's great. Um, so, so Josh, one of the things that we talk about a lot as cardiologists when we're counseling our patients about healthier diets is we get into this conversation about salt. And I'd love it if you could break it down a little bit. How much salt should we be eating? What's the concern if we have yep. too much? Don't we need some salt in our diets? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's true. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on salt and generally speaking, a Western diet is pretty salt heavy. Um, and, and we know that dietary sodium or salt, uh, increase can lead to not just, uh, symptoms of heart failure, but it can raise blood pressure and it can lead to all sorts of other health consequences. Um, and the reason it's particularly important in patients who have a diagnosis of congestive heart failure is, as I like to explain to a lot of my patients, water follows salt. And one of the main symptoms uh, for patients with heart failure is water retention or feelings of congestion. It's in the name. And it sort of follows that if you can limit your dietary sodium or against salt, then you've got a better chance at keeping your body's fluid balance in check. So when I first went into training for heart failure, the mantra was as low sodium a diet as possible. But over the last couple of years, we've actually learned that that can be detrimental. You do need some salt in your diet. And so nowadays, we typically recommend roughly three to four grams of sodium uh, per day in your diet. Now, most people like myself are not walking around with a, you know, a measuring cup and measuring how much sodium and putting it on a scale you're putting in your body. So what I typically tell patients is if you go to the grocery store and you're sticking to the outside edges of a grocery store, that's your fruit, your vegetable, your fresh meats, your fresh fish. Um, if you're doing that and you're cooking most of your meals, you're going to be just fine. And if you're not adding a ton of salt using a salt shaker, uh, when you're cooking, most people are going to do just fine in terms of limiting their sodium uh, within those uh, expected or, or sort of recommended ranges. That's really helpful. Um, I was, I remember when I learned as a medical student or maybe as, as a resident that only about maybe 10% or 20% at most of the sodium that people get from their diets is from a salt shaker, uh, you know, salt that they use to flavor their food once it's prepared or salt that's involved when when they cook it it really seems to be the majority is from processed foods prepared foods mm -hmm. restaurant foods and so even though 
uh, people out there might think, hey, I'm doing a great job. I don't have a salt shaker on my table at home. They still might be getting a lot of salt if they're purchasing a lot of canned soups or mm -hmm. uh, frozen meals uh, that they heat up later, stuff like that. Um, Jacob, uh, so Josh said that wherever salt goes, water goes. And I've had some patients say to me, even patients with congestive heart failure say, well, you know, I want to get that salt out of my system, so I should just drink more water and basically flush, flush things through. Because there is this idea out there in the world that water is this healthy thing, that it, it cleans you out, so to speak, flushes out all the toxins and stuff like that. So how can we get into trouble potentially using that kind of thinking when it comes to congestive heart failure? I love this question, Jamie. Um, I, I hear that a lot, and it's important for the listeners to recognize that the body, and in this case, the kidneys in particular, are very uh, effective at eliminating excess uh, fluid. Um, but on the other hand, they're also very effective at conserving and maintaining what we call homeostasis. The amount of fluid that the body needs is very tightly regulated. So if you drink excess water, you're simply going to remove it in your urine. And there's no need for you to be concerned about flushing out the system because the kidneys do a tremendous job without any direct input from us. So as Josh mentioned, one of the major manifestations of heart failure is the tendency to retain fluid. And with our Western diets, which tend to be high in salt, we can retain fluid. And if we drink water or other fluids in excess, that will allow for even further buildup of fluid, either in the lungs or in the extremities, in the legs. And so we, we see many patients uh, who are presenting with symptoms that are directly related to the retention of initially salt, uh, but the consequence of fluid retention is what drives most of the symptoms and what leads to the term congestive in the name congestive heart failure. That's right. Um so whenever we talk about diet, uh, the other thing that we talk about in the same breath is typically exercise. And um, Josh, if you wouldn't mind breaking down what a general reasonable exercise recommendation is, not just for people who might have heart failure, but mm -hmm. for everybody else, what, what should people be aiming to do? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what I try and counsel most of my patients on is to just try and be as active as you can in your daily life. You know, it's great if you can make it to a gym and you can work out, uh, you know, every day on an elliptical or a stationary bike or a treadmill and, and do, you know, lightweight exercises. But really, we should be aiming for at least 30 to 60 minutes of activity a day. And I tell my patients that doesn't have to be at a gym. It can, and it doesn't necessarily have to be 60 continuous minutes a day. Do simple things like take the stairs, you know, up to the second flight, second floor where your office is instead of the elevator. Park at the back of the parking lot and walk into the grocery store. Things like that to increase your daily activity and get your steps in, so to speak, um, can be really, you know, significant in uh, altering the, the trajectory of, of patients' cardiovascular health. 
Um, and so those recommendations are similar to what we recommend for patients, whether they've got no heart disease, heart disease, or a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. Aerobic or, or exercise uh, movement activity, um, 30 to 60 minutes a day, where they just get their heart rate up a little bit and um, push their bodies uh, out of their comfort zone is kind of what I would recommend. I, I like that you mentioned that idea of pushing your body a little bit out of your comfort zone, because uh, I think we all remember, especially from middle school or high school gym class, that exercise sometimes feels a little bit uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and that's okay. Um, obviously, there's there's a safe and unsafe version of being less comfortable, but it's during those times when you push yourself a little bit that you do start to achieve um, growth and improvement. And so, I, in addition to just uh, moving our bodies in a in a regular, casual way, it's nice to think that we can also grow and and improve by uh, putting forth that little bit of extra effort. Um, while we're talking about uh, lifestyle uh, issues here, um, we have a question uh, about a genetic condition that actually can predispose people potentially to heart failure. It's called familial hypercholesterolemia. And I was wondering, uh, you know, Jacob, if you could just share briefly, what does that long phrase even mean? And how could it potentially put somebody at risk for developing heart failure? Absolutely. So we can break it down. So familial hypercholesterolemia. So hypercholesterolemia is simply uh, elevation of blood lipids, so high cholesterol. And then familial means that it's inherited or genetic. So uh, there are multiple different types of familial hypercholesterolemia. But at the end of the day, they all result in a high cholesterol panel with typically an elevated um, bad cholesterol and low levels of the good cholesterol. Now, as part of general health maintenance, um, most patients who are um, over the age of say 30 should have their cholesterol checked periodically. And that basic lab test would indicate whether someone had an elevated cholesterol. It's certainly part of the evaluation of somebody who has heart disease in general and heart failure specifically. Now, an elevation in cholesterol we know is one of the strongest risk factors for developing coronary artery disease. And as I indicated earlier, blocked heart arteries, coronary artery disease can be a major reason um, in modern countries for patients to develop heart failure. So identifying and treating an elevation of the cholesterol is a very important step in reducing one's risk for heart disease in general and heart failure specifically. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I, and I really appreciate that that question was asked because it speaks to the idea that in addition to just going about in our daily lives and trying to eat a healthier diet, trying to stay active, um, there is this idea of having some health maintenance. Um, and so part of our jobs and responsibilities in trying to be healthy people is keeping an eye on these silent risk factors like blood pressure, like cholesterol, that people generally aren't going to have symptoms of, but especially as we age, may become more in the picture. And uh, a simple blood test can tell you a lot about your potential risk. And depending on what the, the results might be, might even give you some insight as to whether you have a more familial or genetic uh, component of this and might even want to talk to family members about getting their uh, cholesterol screened as well. Um, 
So we've talked about prevention a little bit. We've talked about lifestyle a little bit. Then there are medications because, you know, as much as we'd prefer not to have to recommend that anybody take a medication, sometimes it may be appropriate uh, to help them have a better quality of life and to live longer. Uh, the medication that I want to focus on with you guys is the diuretic, the water pill. Um, tell me, Josh, why do we prescribe these? And why, why are they sometimes important uh, for people to take? Yeah, so um, they are often quite important for patients with congestive heart failure. And we don't prescribe them because we are evil and we're mean, even though we recognize that when a water pill works, um, it can it can be a, a uncomfortable and it can it can cause um, impairments in your quality of life. But the reason we prescribe them is because they are very effective at reducing congestion. Again, they they stimulate the kidney to excrete excess fluid and the main driver of symptoms for the majority of patients with congestive heart failure is an excess in fluid in the body. And we need to drive that uh, fluid out so patients have improved breathing. They're not swollen or feeling bloated. They don't have swelling in their legs. Um, and they can be incredibly effective at making patients feel better, uh, despite the fact that um, they, uh, when they work, they work fairly effectively. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think it's important for people to realize that if they have been uh, prescribed a water pill or a diuretic, uh, there's a lot of thinking as to, to why they should be taking a, what the appropriate dose should be and uh, to stick with it. Um, because even though it can be absolutely inconvenient sometimes to take these medications, they can be the difference between sometimes even being hospitalized and not being hospitalized. Um, so we've talked about prevention a little bit, lifestyle, little on medication. And then we get to some of the more advanced treatments. And people are always interested in kind of what's new, what's next. And there's two different aspects of these advanced treatments that I thought we might get into a little bit. One, I, I'll describe as, as mechanical support for the heart. And the second is heart transplant. And so I'm curious, Jacob, if you could take us through a little bit of what we do for patients today in terms of mechanical support for their hearts if they're having a difficult time. So mechanical support for the heart actually has a very long history, um, but if we think about what's available most recently, there have been incredible advances in engineering and technology that allow patients to live long lives, uh, even on uh, some of these support devices. So the most common uh, type of support device that we're talking about is what's called a LVAD or left ventricular assist device. And basically what that means is that a heart pump is actually directly inserted into the native heart. So the heart's not removed uh, with these most common um, types of pumps, but it's actually inserted into the heart and essentially takes over most of the work of the heart. Um, these devices um, allow patients to leave the hospital, allow patients to resume 
uh, an active life. Um, they do come with some some barriers or some burdens. Um, these include equipment to power the device that have to be carried. So there are, you know, batteries that are about the size of one's phone that have to be carried in a, in a controller. There is, at least in the current generation of devices, a small tube that exits the body to connect the internal pump to uh, the power sources and to the computer that drives it. Um, but as I mentioned, uh, patients who are supported with these types of pumps can, can live for a long time, uh, 10 years or more in, in the best circumstances, and can oftentimes resume uh, a very active and healthy lifestyle, including exercise. I remember even as a kid, before I knew that I was going to go to medical school someday, I remember hearing uh, people talk about on TV of the idea of an artificial heart. You know, the idea that you would take out a person's heart and put in this machine that would fully uh, replicate the activities of the heart. Um, do you think that'll ever happen? Do you think we're close to it? Well, in fact, it's not science fiction. Uh, the total artificial heart has been a reality uh, since the 1980s. Some of our listeners may remember Barney Clark, who was the first human to receive a total artificial heart, I believe in 1982, um, around there. And since then, uh, total artificial hearts have uh, been a mainstay of treatment for a very select group of patients who are not eligible for um, the LVAD or may not be immediately eligible for a heart transplant. And so there are hundreds of patients every year who are implanted uh, with those devices, usually as a means of supporting them until they can go on to get a heart transplant. But it's not science fiction. Um, and, and like the VAD, the engineering uh, continues to improve. These devices are getting smaller uh, and they are improving. So we may see that as time goes on, more and more patients uh, receive those types of support devices as well. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes sense that with, you know, like you held up your, your phone earlier, the phones keep getting better and better and so do the hearts. Uh, but these artificial hearts do retain some inherent challenges, right? Uh, they have to have a power source. There's a potential risk of infection. Um, there's a risk of blood clotting inside the device. And so even though we're excited about all the progress we're making in mechanical support and even in artificial hearts, heart transplants have also uh, developed into a very important and somewhat accessible option uh, for people who need them. Josh, can you talk to us a little bit about heart transplants? Uh, how many are done out there? And what can patients expect if they get a heart transplant in terms of the next chapter of their lives? Yeah, I mean, transplant has been a mainstay of therapy in our field for the sickest of patients for well over 40 years. And we've got, you know, a long experience doing these kind of surgeries for patients. And, and quite frankly, it can give them their lives back for lack of a better expression. I mean, they, they get not just longevity, but they get quality of life back that they, that they had lost because of their progressive heart failure. Um, the problem with heart transplant uh, is that heart, hearts are not grown in a lab. Uh, they are not... Um, you know, manufactured in a factory like an LVAD is. And so there is a limited supply of available organs. Typically uh, in the United States, we're doing, you know, 
uh, around 3,500 heart transplants a year. Um, and the, the, the donor pool, as we say, has been growing slowly as of in the last couple of years, but it's not nearly enough, uh, donors to satisfy the number of patients who are so sick that they require that therapy. And I will say it is a fantastic therapy, but it is not a therapy without its own set of complications. We are putting an organ from another uh, individual into your body, and we do our best to match that organ in terms of size, in terms of blood type, in terms of various immunologic factors, but it is not you. And as a result, we have to give you medicine to prevent your own immune system from attacking something foreign in your body so that that organ, that heart can function as normally as possible. And so there are complications from, from that as well. But uh, for patients who are at the far end of the spectrum, who are in need of this therapy, it can be a uh, lifesaver. It sure can. And uh, it, it's important for people to recognize that the number of heart transplants done in the United States year to year has been fairly flat over the past several decades. And so to the, if, uh, to the effect that you can uh, sign up to be an organ donor uh, and be part of the solution, I, I think is a great thing. One last thing I wanted to quickly mention is that uh, people may have seen in the news uh, information about a person having a heart transplant from a pig on the East Coast. And that opens up another incredibly exciting conversation about what might be possible in the future uh, to help satisfy this need uh, for donors uh, down the line. But for now, I just want to thank you guys so much, mm -hmm. Dr. Jacob Abraham, Dr. Josh Remick, my colleagues and buddies, I'm just so happy to have the opportunity to talk with you guys and uh, learn from you uh, like I do every day. And thanks to everybody out there for uh, listening and for participating by uh, sharing questions with us. Uh, remember, if you are looking for medical advice, uh, please uh, contact your own physician or uh, visit providence.org and make sure to follow Providence uh, on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks so much, everybody.